What is worse, instead of abating, the shortage is increasing. It is estimated that 61.16 lakh houses costing about rupees 19,662 crores will have to be constructed during 1983-87 to shelter the net increase of population in our cities. And during the period 1988-1992, to 75.3 lakh houses at the cost of rupees 24,218 crores will be needed. Clearly, physical and financial resources of this order will not be available at all, and the position of housing in our Actually, financial outlay required for additional construction will be much more than estimated here, as the cost of construction is bound to go up. During the first three years of the sixth five-year plan, the cost of construction increased at an average rate of 15.6%. The position in regard to availability of municipal services is equally depressing. Only 40% of our cities have protected water supply, and that too of inferior quality. In respect of sewerage, only 8% have underground system. About half of the inhabitants of the cities have no access to public lavatories. The standard of open spaces in our cities is distressingly low. It is only 0.83 acres per 1,000 population against six times that proportion in American cities and 15 times the British towns. The slums and squatter settlements have become the most serious problem of our cities. At present, about 30% of the city's population live in these settlements. About 8,000 acres of Bombay's land is slum, is where 3.5 million live in a density of 400 persons per acre. No site is too slushy, too filthy, and too dangerous for the precarious huddle of huts to be put up and for human beings to dwell in them. Calcutta and its attendant towns and districts now stretch like a rotting narrow ribbon for six miles along the banks of Fugli River. And in every possible way that a city can go sour, this has gone sourer. An estimated 600,000 sleep in the streets every night. Almost half of the suffocating populous area is totally without sewers. And a moderate shower floods the shallow kacha channels, which act as drains and sweep the filth and effluent through a thousand of busty basements. Dharvi of Bombay is now the biggest slum of the world. It has hardly any road, and in most places, width of the lane is less than two feet. If the present trends continue, 75% of the Bombay population would be living in slums by the turn of the century. In Kanpur, between 1961 and 1976, the slum population increased by 133%. It is not only the congestion or absence of civic amenities, but also the unclean way of life and utter disregard of civic obligations that make our settlements extremely filthy. Japanese cities are extremely congested, and their streets and lanes are crowded with people, yet they are remarkably clean. Even in other developing countries, this where flood of squatters from rural areas continue unabated, the city slums are better than those in India. In the words of Professor Marshall, a noted scholar of sociology, the city slums of Ceylon, Thailand, Hong Kong, and Lagos reveal nothing like the insanitary conditions prevailing in the slums of Calcutta and Kanpur. Here it needs to be pointed out that in our country, most of the villages are also without adequate facilities 
although the crippling effect on the body and soul is somewhat mitigated by open atmosphere around. About 90% of the villages, village houses are of mud. 40% of the families live in one room house, 29% in two room houses, and 14% in three room houses. About half of the villages do not have any pakka structures at all. It is estimated that to provide rudimentary shelter or house to rural population during 1983 to 87, 70 lakh additional houses at the cost of rupees 12,316 crores need to be constructed in the villages. And for the period 1982 to 1992, 63 lakh houses need to be constructed at the cost of rupees 11,000. 60 crores. The Green Revolution, though it has made dramatic contribution in increasing the country's food production, has increased rural disparities and made it more difficult for the poor to stay in the villages. About 75% of the rural household this have only 10% of the agricultural land, recording. while 3% of the rural household have cornered about 50% of the agricultural land. For the poor, the quality of life in both the cities and the villages is virtually the same. The same shortage of living space, the same insanitation, the same phenomena of people without clean water supply and sewage facilities. A sizable portion of the migrants to the cities merely exchange urban for rural misery. The analysis of 1981 Indian census shows that in the poorer states like Orissa and Bihar, where the percentage of urban population is 12, it is the push factor that swells the population of the cities. While in the comparatively richer states like Maharashtra, Gujarat and Tamil Nadu, where urbanization has gone up to 30%, it is the pull factor that accounts for migration from villages to the urban centers. Thus, it is a peculiar combination of the push and pull factor that is accelerating the migration and de determining its characteristics. And as is evident from the 1981 census data of major metropolitan centers and their hinterlands, the growth rate of hinterland has been substantial. For instance, the growth of Delhi metropolis during the period 1971 to 81 has been 4.6%, while its hinterland has at the same time grown by 5.8%. Similar is the position in regard to Bangalore and its hinterland. The problem of simultaneous this growth and the peculiar combination recording. of push and pull factors bring us face to face with one of the gravest dilemma of our times. If we do not encourage substantial migration from the villages, these will be swamped with unemployed farmers and laborers. If, on the other hand, we step up migration, our big cities will grow at a disastrous rate and will be overwhelmed by squatters. At present, on an average, the squatter population is increasing at the rate of about 10 to 12 percent per annum in our cities, which is more than double the general growth rate of the population in the city. Contrary to general impression, a sizable number of migrants remain unemployed or underemployed in the cities. A recent study sponsored by the International Labour Organization reveals that about 20% of the slum dwellers in the cities of Bombay are unemployed, and a third of them have been unemployed for more than five years. In rural areas, the rich peasants and farmers are carrying all the agriculture surpluses. This, coupled with the migration without real and dynamic industrialization, is causing acute hardship to certain sections of urban and rural poor. Both our cities and villages 
have really two social, economic, and cultural levels. At a higher level, our cities suffer from the extravagance of European urbanization and our villages from the hangover of the feudal era. At a lower level, both suffer from acute poverty and deprivation. In this the cities, only, only a few get jobs in the industrial sector. Most of them are underemployed in the tertiary sector as hawker, domestic servants, rickshaw drivers, and they are too disorganized to constitute an effective pressure group. In the rural area too, the landless and the deprived lack articulation and organization to make their presence felt. If the present trends and attitude persist, migration and squatting will change the very structure of our cities. It will subvert the pattern of living. It will give rise to new civic and cultural distortion. Unfortunately, the problems are being further compounded by unauthorized encroachments and illegal construction on public lands. These encroachments and constructions are being done not only by the poor, but also by the better off and even by the affluent. Urban indiscipline is creeping imperceptibly into our civic setup like a cancer. And large-scale violations of civic laws are taking place with a view to securing pecuniary benefits at the expense of public interest. Taking advantage of the weakness of the urban institution, the illegal builders have perfected a cunning technique, obtain stay orders from the courts, buy time, and then plead that the illegality is old and the only practical way is to regularize it. More often than not, the plea of regularization has succeeded. And this has encouraged this more and more people to adopt the same recording. technique and get away with huge illegal benefits. The illegal builders are ruining the city. Any firm action taken against them, though warmly welcomed by the law-abiding citizens and general public, is termed as excess through a propaganda machinery that is assiduously set in motion. Pressure groups come into play, crowds are gathered, and human considerations are summoned, and action is frustrated. What is worse is that this urban indiscipline is being abetted by the legal system and its various components, including the attitude of the litigants. The manner in which this system is operating in the civic sphere demonstrates in a classic way that Apart from the structure of the institution, it is the spirit with which the institution is run that really matters. In the absence of proper spirit, the institution intended to serve a particular cause happens to serve exactly the opposite cause. It is indeed paradoxical to have justice object to such steps as endeavor to bring justice into an unjust situation. The vested interests are able to exploit the system, and this is causing incalculable harm to the city, the people, and the rule of law itself. For instance, one court issued as many as 1,833 stay orders in a year are so against the notices issued by civic authorities, and this covered almost all the cases in which action was initiated by the authorities against the illegal acts. This is All India Radio Archives recording. Then there are unauthorized constructions which are done under the smoke screen of religion. Self-styled leaders of religious communities or groups occupy public lands with impunity. The interest of a caucus is described as interest of a religious community and even legally correct and normally perfect action is described as hurting the sentiments of the people. Most of our cities lack efficient transport system, 
four major cities account for one-eighth of the 16,000 annual road fatalities in our country. This is the highest motor casualty rate in the world. In Bombay, three to four persons die every day on the suburban trains and two are killed on the road. In Delhi, 982 persons died in road accident in 1982. Congestion and traffic jams are rampant. More often than not, half the metal road is encroached upon. Traffic staff is inadequate. For instance, in Delhi, there are 35 lakh commuters every day and there are only 1,200 policemen to man traffic. Primitive and modern modes of movement exist side by side. The bullock cart, the car, and the heavy trucks have to compete for the same limited space, causing speed stagnation, pollution, and commercial bottlenecks. For instance, in Delhi, there are 20 kinds of vehicles. There are 6.25 lakhs registered motor vehicles and 13 lakh non-motorized vehicles. This is All India Radio Archives recording. The relationship of work, residence, and the structure of the city is, really, is rarely well conceived. The distance between work and home is lengthening. The average for Bombay is 17 kilometers and for Delhi, 11 kilometers. But lakhs travel anything between 50 to 120 kilometers, spending four to six hours a day in buses and trains. On Bombay local trains, over five million tickets are sold every day. In most big cities, trains and buses have increased only by about 33% of the additional demand. There is little appreciation of the fact that the movement of the vehicle has several important applications. The energy it consumes, the space and raw material it requires, the pollution which it causes, and the environmental and the ecological problem which it raises. Extreme congestion and high densities and use of inferior quality of charcoal and fuel wood by majority of the people to meet their needs of energy cause a high degree of air pollution. Contrary to general impression, concentration of suspended particulate matters, especially carbon monoxide in our cities, is many times more than in the western cities at its worst. These cities had at one stage acquired notoriety for air and water pollution due to emission from automobiles and industries. Noise is an other factor that lowers the quality of life in our cities. According to the survey conducted by the National Physical Laboratory, Delhi, Bombay, and Calcutta this are the noisiest cities in the world. Another study of the Society for Clean Environment reveals that even on non-festive days, noise level in the city is 77 decibel, decibels as compared to the WHO standard of 19 decibels. It should be obvious from the above facts that the general state of our cities is not encouraging, and in many areas we have taken a wrong turn. There is inadequate understanding of the forces at work, and we seem to have few ideas to prevent this situation from reaching a point of no return. Before proceeding further, it may be useful to have a look at what is happening in other developing countries. This will enhance our understanding of the underlying forces and help in exploring solution to the problems. These forces are similar in origin and impact. It is estimated by the turn of the century, 66% of the world urban population will be living in the cities of the developing countries. The world's major metropolises are now found in the developing countries. In 1950, only 23 cities in these countries had more than 1 million population. By 1975, this number increased to 90. 
and by 1985 it is expected to be 147. At least one third of the population of the cities of the developing countries live in miserable shanty towns and they are doubling in size every four and a half years. They are not only swelled by population growth but by the greatest migration in history, a ceaseless tide of people leaving the countryside. The United Nations estimates that in the third world cities up to 80% of the population lives in slums, shanty towns and other uncontrolled settlements. In Africa, squatter settlements constitute 90% of Addis Baba, 61% of Accra, 35% of Nairobi and 30% of Manorovia. In Asia, squatter settlements from 29% of Seoul, 31% of Busan, 35% of Manila. In Latin America, squatter settlements from 30% of Rio de Janeiro, 50% of Rockefs, 60% of Bogota, 72% of Santo Domingo, 46% of Mexico City, 40% of Lima, and 42% of Caracas. In Tunisia, squatters live in cave dug out of hills. In some Southeast Asian cities, there are floating squatters colonies in junks, boats, and half-sunk ships. Near Mexico City, occupation of public land by squatters is so rapid that they have earned the name of squatters' parachutes. History has recorded the birth and growth of many awful slums. The earliest slum, the Jewish ghettos, were labeled as nauseous and deadly. The Irish and Chinese slums earned in the of being most fearful. And the English slums of the 19th century were, were called frowsy dens by Dickens. Quite a number of city slums of the developing countries are no less deadly than the Jewish ghettos no less fearful than the Irish and Chinese slums, no less frowsy than the slums of Dickens, England. The policies and program so far evolved to meet the critical situations have proved wholly inadequate. The site and services schemes supported by the World Bank have made little impact. A study made by the International Institute for Environment and Development concludes that even if all of the world's bank finances were allocated to basic housing amenity, excluding actual construction, these poorest elements of global society would have at the disposal only $232 per person per year to upgrade their shelters. If one accepts the World Bank conservative estimate that there are 200 million urban people living in inadequate shelter, then all its agencies would be spending only about $8 per person for ameliorating those conditions. It has been estimated that over half a billion houses have to be constructed before the year 2000 to provide shelter to the people of the developing country. The average rate of construction in these countries is only 1.8 per 1,000 people per year as against the requirement of eight houses per 1,000 people per year. According to the study made by the International Institute of Environment Development, a continuing problem is that of inflation in the cost of land and building material devalues a house owner's repayment on his loan. Funds cannot be effectively recycled and housing finance becomes a bottomless pit, continuously needing more money. What do these conditions reveal? How is it that not even a single city of the developing countries has been able to solve or even to contain the problem of its slums and squatters, of its land and housing, of its transport and social services? And why are the conditions deteriorating? 
the answer to all such questions is that the city of the developing world is still in the grip of the same forces which made one part of the world rich and the other poor, which concentrated the ability to exploit and manipulate all resources in one section of the international community and deprive the other of the same. The wretched, humiliated, despised, insulted, and oppressed of the human race, wrote American novelist Richard Wright, who attended the Bandung Conference, left their calling cards on the table of history, announcing their arrival at the international scene. Arrived they did, but with all the past burdens of iniquity and injustice on their head, and their vision blocked by the old reflexes and models, they remained powerless to take a new turn and chalk out a new path towards economic emancipation, both externally and internally. What was earlier taken by the erstwhile colony, colonial masters and their collaborators through political and military domination began to be taken through trade and exchange rate manipulation. And within the city community, old elites who were beneficiary of the colonial rules were replaced by new elites who kept the same system going. The only difference being that the later were more powerful and articulate than the old ones. Process of urbanization in the third world continues to be controlled by external forces and mode of production in which both urban and rural poor continue to subsidize the local elites and the erstwhile colonial rulers by way of cheap goods, services, and labor. In essential ingredients, the plot of the drama remains the same, though the actors now wear different masks, speak different languages, and act in a more subtle and refined way. The state in the developing countries, in most cases unwittingly perhaps, is strengthening the power of the elite, both in the rural and urban areas. The trickle-down effect of economic growth has not materialized, and millions are now living and working in what is now called the informal sector, a twilight zone between the formal industrial and rural sectors, without any hope of ever getting absorbed in the formal industrial sector. Looking at the conditions of our cities and the cities of other developing countries, the following lines of T.S. Eliot come to mind. Shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gestures without motion, what are the roots that clutch, what branches grow out of this stony rubbish. History of urban literature of the past 30 years shows that the authors are usually convincing while analyzing the current situation. But when it comes to laying down a practical program of action, they are rather imprecise. The remedies suggested have usually proved unworkable and incapable of yielding definite results. Even the resolution of UN bodies are usually crouched in generalities and seldom indicate how resources in concrete form will be made available for implementation of the recommendations. Undoubtedly, future is different, difficult to predict, particularly when the world is moving so fast and social, economic, political, international issues of far-reaching consequences are involved in giving a new shape to our cities. Nevertheless, an attempt is made here to indicate a clear blueprint, a precise agenda for action, and also to provide some food for thought for working on new lines. The planks of this agenda are technology adaptation for our cities, particularly in the sphere of public utilities and informal sector of our economy, a new approach to urban lands and housing a new policy for migrants coming to the cities, 
a new attitude towards old and historic portions of the cities. Metropolitan areas have multifaceted economic and social patterns. They require vast and complex organizations. In response to new needs, a number of new organizations like housing boards and developing authorities have, added, have been added to our cities. The existing organizations dealing with public utilities like water, sewer, transport and electricity have also grown both in size and complexity. All this has given rise to a host of new problems of control and coordination. And these problems are compounded by a number of other factors. Our city administration seems to be working in a spiritual and ideological vacuum. In the absence of clear perception and sense of urgency, the entire administration is reduced to a routine and ineffectual exercise in which the central objectives are swamped by peripheral and procedural issues. The management of our cities requires speed and dynamism. Our administrative ethos militates against both. Consequently, huge metropolitan machinery is crippled by Kafkaian burden of paper. Our corporation and local bodies, constituted as they are, do not attract the right talent, nor is this the right motivation. Mahatma Gandhi wanted our municipal councillors not to seek honours or indulge in mutual rivalries, but to have real spirit of service and convert themselves into unpaid sweepers and road makers and above all, take pride in doing so. How many of our city fathers are managers are coming up to this ideal of Gandhiji? This there is, is an urgent need for reform and reorganization. Since conditions differ in different metropolitan cities, it is not possible to lay down the same structural framework for all of them. Nevertheless, a broad indication of the structural changes required is indicated here. Every metropolitan city should have at least three main levels of organization. At the top, there should be an apex body with chief minister as chairman. On this apex body, there should be at least three representatives of the state legislature and one of parliament. Four professional experts in management and city planning should be nominated on this body. The head of all functional organizations should be ex officio members of this body. The apex body should lay down the entire strategy of planning and development and management of the cities, keeping in view the long-term perspective. It should encompass all activities, including police, transport, energy, and technology. It should have the powers to allocate development funds to various agencies and to supervise and coordinate the implementation of their development programs. All the agencies should obtain policy directions from this apex body. The apex body should also be in control of all lands within the urbanizable limits of the metropolitan city and decide how best to use them for augmenting resources and financing urban development projects, especially for the benefits of the migrants. It should also have the authority to approve or disapprove or even to initiate various tax proposals pertaining to municipal or functional bodies. The capital budget of all these agencies should be controlled by the apex body. This apex body should have a number of executive wings and its chief executive should be a very senior civil servant. It should have modern system of management and control and also divide its organization 
in various departments like the state governments do. Besides the usual department, it should have Department of Modernization, Department of Energy, Department of Technology Options, Department of Regional Coordination, and Department of Adjustment and Pollution Control. Below the apex body, there should be functional organizations, each headed by a technocrat of proven ability and manned by professionally competent staff. For internal working, the functional organization should be autonomous, but for the purpose of policy and directions of development, controlled by the apex body, which should have the authority to make all senior and key appointments. With each functional organization, there should be attached a small advisory council of non-officials, preferably elected municipal councillors, and the advisory council should function on the same basis as the consultative committees of parliament. At least two more functional bodies should be added, one dealing with the collection of property and other municipal taxes, and the second with the sanction of building plans and enforcement of bylaws and regulations. <laughs> At a level parallel to the functions organizations, there should be municipal body or bodies which should deal with day-to-day -day municipal affairs pertaining to sanitation, licensing, primary education and public health. The rationale of these proposals is that the pressure of democratic opinion should be applied at the level of the apex body or at the grassroots of the municipal body, leaving the intermediary functional organization to run the administration purely on principles of prof professional efficiency. This will combine answerability with the requirement of efficiency and dynamism. If functional organizations relating to taxes are allowed to run on the line suggested here, revenue will substantially increase, and this will enable the apex body to allocate resources at the points where they are needed most. At the same time, functional organ organizations' arbitrariness, if any, could be checked by the apex body. At the higher level, of course, the state legislature, state legislature will exert its own democratic pressure on the apex body. As a part of the institutional reform, new legal arrangements need to be formulated with a view to avoiding undue interference from the civil courts, and at the same time, enabling the citizens to obtain redress of their grievances against misuse of authority. The jurisdiction of the civil court should be barred. Instead, special tribunals should be set up. These tribunals will not have the power to grant stay orders, but will have the powers to grant exemption from the requirement of levying court fees in suits claiming damages from the civic bodies or developing authorities. The basic objective would be to ensure that the citizens' rights are protected and safeguarded against misuse of authority while at the same time preventing the legal setup to delay the implementation of the development schemes. Above all, we require a new type of urban administrator who is specially trained for the job and possesses the necessary skill and motivation. There is a need for setting up of an academy for urban administration. This academy, besides importing training and skill to senior managerial and technical staff, should also conduct and coordinate research in respect of human settlement technology. Personal administration has been the weakest item of the city's administration. The proposed academy could help in eliminating this weakness. It is necessary that highly competent and professional staff should be appointed in various organs of city's administration 
and emphasis should be on quality rather than quantity. For instance, about 400 professionals are employed in a single British new town for about 200,000 population. In our cities, appointment of professional managers and technical personnel is a very limited scale. In view of the growing complexity, they have to be assigned much greater role and responsibility. For a proper recruitment of professional and technical staff, special service commissions could be constituted for states or group of states. Our cities and the cities of the developing countries form part of the global metropolitanism in which they have so far been at the receiving end. They were wronged during the period of colonial domination. They are still being wronged, though under a different garb. Instead of setting in the healing process, the present system is compounding the damage and, our, and leaving our cities with much less real resources and with much more population. At present, one quarter of the world population confined to the developed countries live in affluence, while the three quarters living in the developing countries is in a state of deprivation. In the later, there are 800 million who live in absolute poverty. 700 million are underfed. 550 million are illiterate. And 1,200 million are without access to public health facilities or even safe drinking water. How can we, in the developing countries, have beautiful, balanced, and productive cities with so much of poverty, illiteracy, undernourishment, and civic deprivation around. Rene Dumont once remarked, the rich white man with his overconsumption of meat and his lack of generosity for the poor behaves like a veritable cannibal, an indirect cannibal. What Dumont meant was that by overconsuming food and other resources, the Western man is causing undernourishment and death among the children of the poor countries. Similar observation could be made in regard to the cities. The cities of the affluent countries are creating slums in the cities of the developing countries by overconsuming resources, financial, technical, and natural. This small distribution of resources and consequent disparities of income are increasing. During the last 30 years, the gap between the rich and the poor countries has widened. The real per capita income in the low-income group countries rose only by $80, while in the rich countries it increased by $6,500. That is 80 times. There are two ways of correcting this situation. The first is that there should be inflow of resources in the reverse direction. A little aid, bilateral, or through UN agencies will be of no consequence. What is even a sort of Marshall Plan on a large scale will not do. What is required is a new international economic order, just and fair, and a sort of continuous blood transfusion from the developed to the developing countries to make up for the loss caused earlier till the balance is restored. This, is all India Radio this however, is unlikely to happen, notwithstanding such pious exhortations by the Brand Commission as the world cannot survive half rich, half poor. The search for solution is not an act of benevolence but a condition of mutual survival. Old habits die hard. Nevertheless, we in the developing countries should go on pressing and follow the maxim: we are not undefeated because we have gone on trying.
The second course is to evolve a new system of production and distribution, both in the developed and the developing countries. Fortunately, the modern scientific and technological revolution, especially in the field of electronics, telecommunications, and space, makes it feasible for both the developed and developing countries to do so. For the Western countries, the new technological revolution can facilitate merger of cities into the villages. The cities are already sprawling. Now, the telecommunication, short-circuit TV, and computers make it possible for a modern manager to conduct all his business from a small settlement. He does not require a big office. He can store all the information required on a computer. He does not require personal assistant because he can directly speak into the electronic typewriter. Even at home, he can have all the recreation for which he had previously to go out. The video, the television, and other facilities make it possible for him, his family, and his friends to spend their leisure time at home. In fact, the Western society could gradually become home-centered. This type of society does not depend upon vast industrial machines. Sufficient income and employment can be generated by working on electronics, computers, and other instruments of the present day. The new instruments will not require large quantity of raw material at cheap rates and therefore would not involve impoverishment of the developing countries by the developed ones. In the developing countries, a changed system of production and distribution can enable them to outflank or bypass the full impact of the Industrial Revolution and its evil consequences. There need not be big industrial establishments or great industrial empires depending upon cheap labor and services are involving the movement of large rural population to the metropolitan towns. A technology developed on human scale and on the basis of microelectronic technology could help in redistribution of population in such a way that the villages could be gripped into workable economic units and become productive links of small and medium-sized towns, thereby facilitating only manageable proportion of population to flow into the metropolitan cities. These metropolitan centers themselves could be adjusted to the new requirements. While in the developed countries, the cities are merging into the countryside. In the developing east, some portion of the villages are moving into the cities in the shape of migrant colonies, which, through a new type of technology, could be gradually upgraded and fully integrated into the city's life. It is not the labor-intensive technology, but micro-electronic technology that we need. The farmer will merely take us to a very low level of productivity. The later provides us ample opportunity for providing for evolving new pattern of production and employment. For instance, electronic telecommunication could appreciably reduce the need for having a vast network of roads and streets, thereby eliminating high consumption of energy and pollution of environment. It is in regard to the evolution of this type of technology that developed countries could share their technological resources with the developing countries without undermining their own aspirations for a still higher standards of life. At the national level, a new pattern emerging out of new technology coupled with public ownership of urban lands 
and restriction of construction of large and costly houses could bring about equitable distribution of income and resources. Our problems are formidable. So far, we have been soft peddling the intricate issues involved. This is all John F. Kennedy once part. observed the cities, their needs, their future, their financing, these are the great unspoken, overlooked, underplayed problems of our times. This observation is more applicable to the Indian cities than to the cities of the West. In our cities, economic problems loom large. Social problems are becoming increasingly acute, and so are the environmental problems <coughs> such as congestion and pollution. It doesn't seem probable that developing countries like India can meet these problems squarely and provide a decent physical and social environment in the near future unless the international community agrees to a more equitable distribution of world resources. It is obvious that if 80% of the world resources are cornered by 20% of the population, the remaining 80% of the population cannot have happy and healthy settlements with just 20% of the resources. At the national level, a blueprint for future must involve a new urban land policy which provides social justice and treats land as a resource to be used for the benefit of the poor migrant. A new approach towards shelter which recognizes that we have problems not of housing in the conventional sense but of roof over the head. A new frame of urban institution which answers the current and emerging requirements of growing metropolises. A new cadre of urban administrators who have the training and motivation to meet the new challenges. A new human settlement technology which helps in the growth of happy and harmonious communities. A new strategy for outflanking the industrial revolution and for evolving a new system of production and distribution of work. Despite sphere limitations, there is a brave new world of urban opportunities. We must have the vision to use them. Our skill and determination can change our liabilities into assets. The neglected migrant of today can become the urban pioneer of tomorrow and make our cities places of peace and productivity, of progress and prosperity. For all this, however, we require a new environment of reform and reorganization. Show me your cities, and I will tell you about the cultural aims of your people. So goes the saying. Surely, we are capable of higher cultural aspirations than our cities at present show. Thanks.